Where Murder Meets Mystery contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, ghoul friends, let's take a walk down the street where Murder Meets Mystery, a podcast exploring the murderous, the mysterious, and everything that lies beyond the beyond. I'm your uh, second string podcast host, Trevor. <laughs> and I'm Grace. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Well, late oh. Halloween. Happy November. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's Halloween for us, but for y'all, it's just November. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Happy Halloween. So, oh, speaking in the spirit of Halloween, we, by the way, we should have done Halloween cases last week. I don't know why we didn't. Whoops. Yeah, we goofed. Cool friends. Yeah, it's fine. We, we, we done fucked up. All of but our cases same. are kind of Halloween cases. They're spooky. So true. So true. Spooky. All things spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally we ask each other, hey, how was your week, Trev? But I decided... Well, no, I didn't decide shit. Trevor said that that throws him off sometimes. I was like, well, how about I ask you a spooky question? So I have a spooky question for Trevor. We usually ask each other about our weeks, but we didn't have a week. It's true. There was I no had an out-of-body experience that lasted seven days. Yeah. No idea. Honest to God, though, this week, we, like, I don't we know what out for if you, 13 years. If you asked me, other after we won trivia on Tuesday, yeah, I said it. Heck yeah, I, we did. Everything else is a distant memory. <laughs> I have no idea. Feels I like understand a dream. that. Yeah. So, Trevor, my spooky question for you is, have you ever tasted human blood that was not your own? Um, no, I don't, I don't think I have, actually. Like, I, that's kind of funny that I haven't. I feel like that's kind of, it should, it should happen, right? But no, I haven't. Yeah, have you? Yeah. I mean, well, you haven't had your vampiric awakening. That's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've um, I've mixed my blood with another kid's blood. Like, you know, did like the whole Blood Brothers thing. Yeah, like a blood oath. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of like, kind of nasty. That's, oh, it's fucking, you're asking for a bloodborne illness. So. Yeah, it's kind of just, that should just that. be a kid thing. That should like when be you get old enough, no you're, you're like, I don't really want anyone's blood in my blood. <laughs> in fact, I prefer it. <laughs> right. The, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mixing blood okay. is a little whack. Yeah. Don't know. Mixing blood is whack. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. That's if we're going to pick a political platform, that's it. <laughs> mixing so, blood is whack. I mean, there's I mean, I think I've had someone else's blood on me, but we don't have to talk about it. I've had someone else's blood on me. I've never tasted someone else's blood. Oh, yeah. Never tasted. Okay. That's yeah. True. Well, actually, I don't know. Okay. For straight men, we don't have to go into it. But I'm just saying, <laughs> there are scenarios where... Just guys being guys. Walking room talk. <laughs> just, just the birds and the bees. Anyway, can we? Uh, can I ask you my question? Ooh, yeah, I'm ready. Um. Okay. So the spooky question that I'm going to ask you is do you wipe back to front or front to back front to back every time i'm not trying to fuck my shit up back to front yeah it's it's back to front all the time can i just ask you do you think i'm a psychopath like genuinely <laughs> because i like no. i or no what would that be a masochist 
Like um, I'm willingly inflicting pain on myself. Have you ever had a u- urinary tract infection? Have you ever had I don't one? Think, no, actually, no. They're ridiculous. First of all, it's like I don't think because, I've had anything wrong with my urethra. Yeah, well, that's because the male urethra is like this big, and the female yeah. urethra is like this big, even shorter. Yeah. So, like, we're more prone to. By the way, this big is I for the visual. For those of you missing the visual, <laughs> uh, she she shortchanged all the males out there. She gave us three inches and gave the females four inches. And suddenly, this is an anatomy podcast, and I don't really know why we went in this direction. I don't know. Anyway, um, I re- I don't I, think uh, you'd wipe. be a masochist. And uh, <laughs> I went front to back every time. Yeah, back to front. Thanks for asking. Way, no, I'm so glad you brought it up. It was great. That's a good question. It wasn't really yeah. spooky, though. No, it's pretty spooky. Uh, UTIs are spooky. Nothing's worse than spooky veganism. <laughs> How are you, you asking? seen that video? Different... What'd you say? I didn't listen. I just laughed. Spooky veganism. I don't want to hear it. I don't. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm just telling you. <laughs> it's kind of the most <laughs> disgusting word ever in anatomy. Yeah, no. That sounds like an illness. Is it a disease? I don't remember. It has to do with the lady, to the female anatomy. Oh, okay. But well, watch the video. It's nice. Or maybe it's vaginosis. Girls. Go girls. Vaginosis is a, is an infection. Bacterial infection. Yeah, that's what it is. Very common. It's like a really like dumb video of a girl dancing and she's like, and I have spooky vaginosis or something like that. Now that the boys are gone, what can we talk about? <laughs> oh man just guys being guys (laughs) (laughs) okay hey trev i was so excited to hear that maybe you have a part two or a two-parter it's probably gonna be like a five-parter oh five-parter whoa that's exciting no it's gonna be a two-parter yeah i know i'll I'll, I'll, I'll tell you (laughs) no no (laughs) It's not true. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm super distracted today, but we're going to, we're going to push through. I went a five parter. Ooh. And you went like this. Just stared into the void. <laughs> the void. Oh the thousand, man. The 10,000 yard stare. Yeah. Right. Is that like uh, the five finger death punch? Is that the same thing? No, that's a band. Like five finger death punch. Yeah. It's well, like I a, think it's also, a isn't it also band. the, Bruce Lee thing where he's like and stops. No, that's his heart. that's the one inch punch. Oh. <laughs> what about my finger? Death punch, punch is just like a cool a cool band name, and they went with or it. an awesome name for a cocktail. Is it not? Yeah, that's not a bad not a bad name. Yeah. Speaking of cocktail, does that well, it has make punch you laugh in it? So time? it's gonna have to be like fruit punch. Well, like jungle juice, like a big like it's something you make in a Rubbermaid tote in a frat house bathroom. <laughs> Rubbermaid what... tote? You mean a bathtub? No, I'm when I say well, yes, also a bathtub. But when I say Rubbermaid tote, I mean like those plastic bins that you store stuff in. Also, when I said bathroom, I meant basement. I don't know why bathroom came out. Basement, yeah. You know, you my think mind you ever was clean the bathtub I... before you make party juice. No, oh, guarantee. I don't no. think you should. I guarantee. Um, okay. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> By the way, for any of you ghoul friends who are listening, if you have drank jungle juice from a frat house bathroom in a basement and made in the bathtub that has not been cleaned just i from think a you frat can house. survive anything yeah you've yeah, got just from a frat house in general 
You've got antibodies. Yeah. For you sure. Think and those, we, I don't know what the antibodies are for. You think those little chino wearing shits are washing their hands before they slice that grapefruit? Fuck that. They're, they're called chubbies with the five inch inseam. What are chinos? Chinos are like a it's a it's a pant like it's a long pant. <laughs> it's like a flat front pair of khakis. Fuck. Okay, I meant. <laughs> but they, I mean, chubbies do look like chinos, but they're just they're incredibly short. Okay, but chinos are also worn by frat boys. You have to understand that the five inch inseam has to be enjoyed when you're young. Right. It has to be enjoyed when you're young. So let 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 the gentlemen enjoy their five inch inseam before it all okay. hangs out. Yeah. And then you can't go in public with your five bitch and Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got a pretty, uh, like a kind of a sad one today. I mean, they're all sad. They're all downers, but this one is like, it's like a specific type of crime. That's just like sad. Nobody, nobody wins, you know, like it's not a wait. When you say specific type of crime, well, you mean like murder type of murder. Yeah. Oh, Shocker. Okay. Spoiler, we'll this will it. be a murder. <laughs> um, I do Where have murder another... meets mystery. Surprise. Yes, I do have another spoiler alert, though. This case is often compared to uh, the case of Diane Downs, which if you haven't listened to that, uh, that episode yet, stop what you're doing and go listen to this. Actually, it doesn't really matter because... Is that Drink and Drive Lady? Auto Brewery uh, Lady? No, that's Diane Schuler. Diane Downs oh. is... Uh, hungry like the wolf lady. Yeah, yummy, yum yum. No, not not yummy. She's like, oh, wait, episode thirty-two. Oh, it's the second episode we did together. Episode thirty-two. Right. This case is very often compared to that of Diane Downs, and um, just a little recap: Diane Downs was a woman who was accused and then found guilty of murdering her three children in cold blood. She accused a random stranger bushy haired stranger that she had seen on the side of the road and she pulled over at night on a dirt road to get help from him or help him and then he randomly shot her kids and we found out that she actually did it in order to be with her lover who had rejected her because she had kids so this is very very similar spoiler alert go listen to it it's it's crazy one of her kids survived didn't they yep episode 32 go listen to it it's crazy um yeah one of the kids survived and it gets it gets juicy wild yeah so this particular case is about susan smith and in the true crime world that word that name carries a lot of weight but trevor that probably means nothing to you susan smith yeah yeah i'm not i'm not ringing any bells it's like a relatively basic name too so i'm sure there are yeah, other yeah. susan smiths out there but so this susan smith was born susan lee Va, it looks like Va, Vaughan. It's V A U G H A N, but I think it's Vaughn. But it doesn't really matter. It's not her name for long. Susan right. Lee Vaughn was born in 1971 in Union, South Carolina. Her childhood was no bueno, okay? Tragedy from okay. a very young age. Susan was the youngest of three children, but she was only six years old when her father, Harry Ray, committed suicide, okay? Young and ill-equipped to handle her overwhelming grief, Susan herself attempted suicide at the age of 13 years old. Susan's mother, Linda, would marry again to a man named Beverly, like red flag right away. That's wild. That's some South Carolina stuff. It's, it so is. Okay. Anyway, 
Not okay. I just want to clarify we're all about gender inclusive naming here and gender neutral naming. That's fine. There's I'm not hating on the man because his name is Beverly, but I'm just saying it's weird in this context. And this well, man's that's his chosen him. name, it's different, but his given name, I don't know how you'd name your son Beverly. That's true. I'm guessing it's a family name. Yeah, like does it well, not sound like a super old white lawyer from Georgia or something like that, like Beverly. Yeah, maybe I could Beverly see maybe, maybe Beverly in the past Same. was more unisex than we think. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so to a man named Beverly C. Russell, who seemed to be what the family needed at the time because they were still kind of reeling from the death of Linda's first husband and Susan's father, Beverly was a thriving stockbroker and a member of both South Carolina's Republican community, Ick, and the Christian coalition, Double Ick. However, Susan's situation only worsened as she began to suffer sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather, who molested 15-year-old Susan by fondling her. Triple ick. Yeah, triple ick. Susan reported this to a faculty member at her high school. I think it was a guidance counselor when she was 16 years old. And her mother confronted Beverly about it, who agreed to stop and attend family therapy. But unfortunately, as most of these stories go, the abuse would only continue. Terrible. Susan attempted suicide multiple times as a result of her worsening depression. Doctors ultimately diagnosed her with an adjustment disorder and blamed her behavior on stress and the uh, loss of her father. Yeah. Well, nothing more stressful than what she's going through. No fucking kidding. Yeah. God. Her so love life the during this time. On yeah. Still a little. Way to go, emotion. Doc. Jeez. Yeah. Her love life during this time was just as tumultuous as her mental condition. She had several chaotic and failed relationships, including one with a man named David Smith. She married David at age 19 when she had fallen pregnant. Callback. Fallen. Fallen pregnant. Two children later, David and Susan's relationship was toxic and generally on and off. During their first year of marriage, um, Susan gave birth to her first child and David lost a brother and his father committed suicide. This is all in their first year. Oh my gosh. So you can imagine this place a strain on the young couple's marriage. They had both experienced trauma, Susan much earlier yeah. in her life, and then David, you know, new kid. He's, as far as I knew, he was 20, maybe, no older than 23. So he's like, he's a kid, she's a kid. It's a lot to know. handle. Yeah, it is. During a period of separation in January of 1994, Susan met a man named Tom Findlay, who was one of the most the more eligible bachelors in their town of Union. I don't know what that's saying much. He's like a Union town. Maybe he had a good job. Maybe he was uh, yeah. from a well, more well-off family, something like yeah. that. I imagine that's, that's my what guess. that says. But he was a Union he was a Union 10. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. So I, I agree. Susan got a taste of what stability both financially, socially, romantically would feel like and so she oh, was really ready good. to commit to this man. As far as I know, she was not divorced from David at this point. And, you know, obviously oh. David's the father of her children, but they were yeah. separated when she met Tom. Okay. However, and this is rather reminiscent of Diane Downs and her obsession with Robert Knickerbocker, if you remember that name. Yeah. Finley wanted nothing to do with a ready-made family and generally did not view Susan to be the stable partner he wanted. So he was like, this, this lady has way too many problems. I don't want to marry into this, you know. Right, which, sure. He sent her a letter in October of 1994 telling her all of this and sending Susan into a downward spiral. So let's fast forward to later that month. October 25th, 1994, Susan is discovered crying on the doorstep of a house near John D. Lake. 
okay, claiming she had been carjacked. Even more devastating, Susan reported that her two sons had been kidnapped during the carjacking, Michael, age three, and Alex, who was just 14 months old. Oh, crap. I know. I want to pause here and note that in his recollection of events, Tom Finley recalls that Susan was, quote, upset because David, her husband, because David knew, or so she thought, some information about her that he was going to make public, end quote. Nobody knows for sure what this information was that was being used for blackmail, but there is some evidence to suggest that Susan had had a continuous sexual relationship with her stepfather, and at this point it was consensual, but it was a result of the early abuse. I find it likely that this is the information with which David was threatening Susan, if it was true. We don't really know. Right. Um, Okay, so back to the kidnapping. Susan reported her car stolen, saying that a black man had carjacked her and abducted her sons. She was active in the media for nine days after the alleged crime, pleading for the safe return of her children, but her story had a number of holes. Police claim that on the second day of the investigation, they became suspicious that Susan was withholding information and even that she may know the location of her children. Meanwhile, a search was underway. This is from Wikipedia. Initial water searches did not locate the car because the police believed it would be within 30 feet of the shore and did not search farther. It turned out to be 122 feet from the shore. After the boys had been missing for two days, Susan and David were subjected to a polygraph test. This is around also when the police began to suspect that she knew more than she was telling them. The biggest breakthrough of the case was her description of the carjacking location. She had claimed that a traffic light had turned red, causing her to stop at an otherwise empty intersection. However, it was determined that the light would not have turned red for her unless a vehicle was present on the intersecting road. This conflicted with her statement that she did not see any other cars there when the carjacking took place. Right. Because they have to, yeah, that's how, that's how traffic light, lights work. Right. So I think that in general, what she was trying to say was that the carjacker had been on foot and yeah. that she was stopped at the red light. And that was when this unknown black man took her car. Right. Right. If, if you're um, a carjacker and you were in a car, you have to have a, an accomplice or you just like trade cars. Right. And now if I, if I had to guess, um, I don't know this for sure, but if I had to guess, the majority of carjackings likely take place in things like parking lots, right? Like they're opportunistic criminals, I, I would yeah. assume. Yeah. Right? You, well, you, they, they got to make sure that it's open. Mm-hmm. And they take place where someone can't just like quickly drive away. Like it's usually where the car is parked. That's my guess. I don't know right. for sure. But that's so. my assumption. So a carjacking in the middle of the road, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. After the ninth day of the investigation, November 3rd, 1994, police revealed their suspicions about her story to Susan, at which point she cracked and admitted to everything. Okay. Mm. Susan admits that three hours after the heated argument with Tom Finley, she put her kids in her 1990 Mazda protege. Yep. It's like a sedan. Okay. And set out for a drive. As she approached the John D. Lake, she contemplated driving the car into the lake, killing herself as well as her children, but changed her mind. Susan put the car in neutral, got out, gave her car a push, and stood there and watched as it slowly rolled into the lake with her children inside. Dang. Ugh. Doesn't that give you chills? Just, like, the idea of her watching and just, like, ugh. This case might be... 
yeah, she's just she's disturbed. Like I don't yeah. know how else to say it. Yeah. Like she's not she's not well. No, she's cuckoo in order for to be able to do that. That's yeah. yeah. This case quickly became an even bigger media sensation and sparked public outrage among Americans who had been grieving for this heartbroken mother for over a week. The next question yeah, I can was, imagine. Yeah. They were just like, we felt sorry for you, right? Yeah. Well, this, this, part, this part is a little bit different than Diane Downs. Like, I think that Diane Downs was crazy from the start. I yeah. think that Susan was more, this to me is, it's giving like more of a psychotic break or some sort of psychotic episode because she, I don't know, like the fact that she was crying and like, unless she's like really crazy manipulative and like she, I believe that she knowingly killed her children. What I don't believe is that she was in her right mind when it happened. I think that something I likely the breakup with Finley, I think kind of was a stressor. Um, Yeah. But the, given the trauma in her past, I think that she even, I think that her decision to kill her children was like, it was some sort of psychotic episode. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I think that her crying. And then she, she got past that, but she was already still in that, in that um, mind mind space right. or the headspace right. of just like things are not going well yeah and i think that her crying and pleading for the return of her children i don't know i mean it's she probably may not... genuine because she probably yeah. felt terrible about it after she yeah um got out of that headspace yeah whereas like diane downs was like completely emotionless and like right. i think she like Diane Downs was like, was, was like not messed up from the start yeah. or just like completely yeah. completely just done from the start. Right. Whereas with right. uh um Susan. with this one with Susan, she's just this one. Yeah. Her name yeah. escapes me. Um Yeah, with Susan with her, she I think she regretted it. It sound yeah. it feels like she did for some reason. I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to tell with these things because I, I don't know anything about the kind of mother she was. We don't have like a ton of um, information about that um, in terms of how she felt about her children. Re- regardless, at the end of the day, she killed her children. I believe she did it knowingly, but I, I just have questions about her mental state when it was happening, you know? Right. Um, and I think that she had been through so much shit in her life. And I think that this breakup with Finley was just like one thing that set her over the, the uh, sent her over the edge. So Anyway, I can see it. Um, this case quickly became an even bigger media sensation and sparked public outrage among Americans who had been grieving for this heartbroken mother for over a week. The next question was motive. Most people agreed that the most likely explanation was her devastation following Finley's rejection. Susan claims that there was no motive, nor was there a plan, and that she was not in her right mind. I don't know that anyone believes there was a plan given that the confrontation with Finley happened only three hours before the murders of Susan's sons, but the general belief, yeah, the general belief held by law enforcement as well as the prosecution was while there may not have been premeditation, Susan sure as hell knew what she was doing. Okay. Yeah. This case is one of three of the most famous cases of mothers murdering their children. Diane Downs and Andrea Yates included. This is a, another story for another episode, but she you may just be familiar with the concept of the case, but this was the woman who drowned her five children in a bathtub. Yeah. Have you I heard think, this? Well, I mean, I think 
If if that's the most popular one, then probably it's in Texas. Yeah, one of it, this Diane Downs and Susan Smith are like the three that I think people really know uh, very well. But yeah, I'll talk about that case for sure because that's a, it has a really important conversation about mental illness and religion, and there's so much wrapped in, up into that one that may be a two parter. But I would love to cover that eventually. The story garnered international attention not only because of the heinous nature of the crime, but it also sparked conversations about race and racial issues because of Susan's bogus and unfounded claim that a black man had stolen her car and her children. Right, right. Well, right. South Carolina back then, and if it's a rural area, yeah, I could see it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there are people who do that today. I've got to say that. Yeah. Her defense, her defense attorney David Brooke argued that her her behavior was rooted in mental illness, rejections, and the years of sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather. Susan was driven to a dark place, which led her to commit the ultimate crime. Now, lead prosecutor Thomas Pope had a different take and viewed Susan Smith to be more closer, more closer, gross, to be far closer to Diane Downs in her, um, as far as her mindset, maybe, or her mental condition. Not a victim, but a murderous manipulator who killed her children to be with her lover, who didn't want kids, right? I honestly think that the truth lies somewhere in between. Susan Smith is a monster who murdered her children knowingly, but also was suffering from severe mental illness. And I don't think anyone can argue that. She, I mean, she had her childhood stolen from her very young, right? Which is sad, yeah. It's so sad. And I mean, like I said, this is a case where I don't know. It seems callous to say that nobody wins, but that's kind of like the idea that's swimming around in my head is just like, it's just so sad all around. Like, right. Ugh, God. It's kind of the same whenever you hear about like a serial killer, they had like a terrible yeah. childhood. It's like, well, you made the monster. Yep. Yeah. You, know, you, you yeah. made like, there's, there's several things that at stake here like she definitely made um the decision to kill her kill her kids right yeah okay Mm -hmm. that but why was that decision so easily taken and and so easily so easily done i feel like that portion of it was done to her or Mm -hmm. you know she was not in her right mind yeah because of all that stuff that had been done to her i think that you know it, it kind of reminds me of that general the general misconception that psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made which is not really the difference between those two but right. i think about serial killers who um like ted bundy who had a relatively normal upbringing and not really any significant trauma in their youth and they were married yeah. and socially healthy and like had this vast circle of connections and even were running was he was running for political office like all of these things that indicate that he's just like a normal, which by the way, the rates of psychopathy amongst politicians, huge. Just got to say, you have to huge. be kind of an egomaniac to huge. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like that. But I think that in general, I would agree with that because you have to kind of be an egomaniac to be like, my ideas are so good that people should listen to me and I should have power over other people. Like that's like, that's yeah, crazy. The way I can't that, imagine having that you mindset. have, the kind of person you have to be to be a politician nowadays yeah. in the U.S. is just, um, I don't think you can be a, too much of a kind-hearted person. So true. And you have to be kind of, yeah, you have to be kind of ruthless. I, I think about this with like, to be a biz, good politician. like powerful business people because also high rates of psychopathy in like the business, the corporate world. 
where right. at the high level, like executives and higher or like CEOs, like the rates of psychopathy are super yeah. high. I don't Surgeons. get that. Well, because I don't get why why people in power or people in power, people leading, people, however you want to, however we want to phrase that. Like I don't get yeah. how like you can automatically just think that your way makes the most sense. Yeah, I I think that there's a certain degree of when you get to a certain status in life, like if you're the head of surgery, right? Sur- surgeons in particular have a high rate of this because they have to be able to detach from they're, they're lose They're killing people every day, not meaning to right? usually, but like they're, they, you have to be able to have a certain level of emotional detachment. And that has to translate at some point into your normal life. Also, right. when you're at that height in your career or your like success, I feel like you have to have some degree of manipulative behavior in order to surpass all of your peers. You have to be able to not even not even really lie, but like use people in certain ways in order to get what you want. You have to understand how to get to that place. Yeah. And you have to step on people to get there. It's just like not right. it's unavoidable. And yeah. maybe that makes me sound super cynical. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It, it does seem like it's um, it's not every day that someone does the right thing enough to where they're then in power. Correct. Like Correct. no one, no one really just does the thing that helps the most people and then gets put in power. When they do, it's it's kind of uh, honestly, it deserves a double take because right. <laughs> then that's like cult behavior. That's so true. That's so true, and that's such a good way to put it because yeah. like. I think that we know that in America, money equals power, right? But I think that, you know, power and influence don't necessarily go hand in hand. There are people in history who have been dead broke, right? Given like people like Mother Teresa, right? Who have been broke as a mean, as by religious means, right? This is just like, she's not really allowed to have tremendous excessive wealth, but like has a tremendous amount of influence and effect on other people. And influence can translate into power in that situation, but she didn't have any money. Right. Like I think of people like that or Gandhi or like, you know, there are plenty of influencers. I hate that term because now I think of TikTokers, but influential Influential people. people. Yeah. Yeah. Who hold a lot of power, but not necessarily a lot of money. But I think the majority of influential people, you know, like we call, I don't know, like we call Jeff Bezos, even if he's like a giant dick, right? He's like one of the most powerful people in the world because of his influence and his impact on society. Yeah. And his, and his wealth. Yeah, exactly. So I don't even know how we started talking about this, but (laughs) I think that, um, big tangent, but I mean, it's still interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I would love to talk by the way about psychopaths and sociopaths because I think it's a, it's actually like as someone who majored in psychology, people ask me that a lot. The first question is, what am I thinking right now? Which is stupid because people think that a psychologist and a psycho psychic are the same thing. And they're not right. (laughs) Um, yeah, I would love to do a bonus episode. Um, I think that talking about exam, like common examples, um, in, you know, I'd be interested to, to kind of maybe take a couple examples from stuff we've already done. Right. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Tie yes. everything in. I totally right. want to 
talk about that. Also, I just want to say something about cult leaders are usually psychopaths and not sociopaths, but we'll talk a little bit more about that um, in that bonus episode. I love that idea. Thank you. It's a good idea. If you like it, ghoul friends, let us know. Yeah. Um, Okay. So despite the defense team's best efforts, the jury deliberated for only two and a half hours on July 22nd, 1995 and found Susan Smith guilty. She was convicted of two counts of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison where she remains to this day. Dang. The end. Makes sense, though, but yeah, that didn't take the jury long. No. Yeah. If a mother murders her kids, it's something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Someone someone has failed. And it's not always just her, you know? It's not always just her, um, I would say. Yeah. So our uh, young friend Trevor has young Trev. history. Young Little Trev. Trev. Little Trev. Little Trev has a mystery he wants to tell us about. I do. So this is a two-parter for for y'all ghoul, fa- ghoul friends out there. I don't think I've done a two-parter yet. No, you haven't. And Marissa didn't no. either. So this oh. is so this is the first two-part mystery. A nice, a nice. WMMM. So what I'm doing today is something that I um I watched like a couple documentaries on. And it's super fascinating. And if I don't do a good job of d- describing it, there's a lot of fa- like facets of it that kind of come into place with how um, how everything ends up. And it's just it's super interesting. But today we are doing um, we're looking into the um, the cult of Waco, Texas, the Branch Davidians. Yes. Woo! David Koresh and how you know the ATF just launched a siege on these people oh my for like God, 51 so days fucking excited insane which that'll I mean, be in part two died, so I'm, but... <laughs> yeah i'm giving you a lot of the backstory and the context yeah. today and yeah. then we'll on the part two we'll go into the siege and talk a little bit about what what happened over the course of those 51 days because it's it's crazy like it turned into a war zone pretty quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and I'll, I'll tell you why that kind of happened and some of the, the uh, themes that were kind of working against each other there mm-hmm. as far as like religious freedom as well mm-hmm. as like, um, you know, the uh, pry it from my cold dead hands mentality kind of deal. Yeah. Kind of how that contributed to a lot of the, and the, the poor handling of um, this hostage situation by the ATF. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I know the the premise and I know of the event, but I know very and I definitely know the names like David Koresh. I know the Branch Davidians, and I know Waco, yeah. right, which has now been uh, taken over by Chip and Joanna Gaines of Fixer oh, Upper wow. Fame. <laughs> I, I bet I bet I, I uh, I'm interested. I'll try to give like a little future. Like or or bring you up into modern times about like how the Branch Davidians are doing because I'm I'm interested in that because I haven't I don't think I remember very much about like what happened and how everything shook out yeah because um, sometimes there's like cults that just like the remnants are, are there like the um uh, FLDS and all oh that stuff, yeah totally yeah which is super crazy but um and, and one, that he's still fucking running the cult from prison oh yeah no it's wild yeah. it's super wild but we're gonna get into it. Yeah. Cool friends, if you don't know what I'm talking about, buckle up. It's going to be a fun one because this one's super, super interesting. But mm-hmm. we're going to start all the way back in 1929 because this one goes deep. This isn't just like a, a, a cult 
raised upon the back of one person. Um, a lot of what we're going to go into has to deal with uh, Christianity itself and kind of the mm-hmm. different de- denominations and and branches mm-hmm. off of Christianity that kind of they kind of go sideways. Um, a lot of people will kind of make up their own interpretations of the Bible, and then it goes every any way it wants to go, any way the wind blows. Um, but in 1929, Victor Hutef, a Bulgarian in- immigrant and a Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath school teacher from Southern California, claimed that he had a new message for the entire Adventist church. Red flag. <laughs> yeah, let's count. Take a shot for every red flag, man. Yeah, so. I will be drinking Victor. sparkling water. <laughs> yeah, so it all starts off with Victor, and he's got a new, a brand new idea. Hmm. So I got a new message for y'all. Um, but his message was rejected by the Adventist leadership and was views, viewed as contrary to the church's basic teachings. And local church congregation congregations disfellowshipped him, which basically mean like, get out of here. You're, yeah. you're not welcome here. Go away. Knucklehead. And his followers. So he managed to gain a couple people. But they all kind of drove them out of the Adventist church. What was his what was his idea? Did it have something to do with like world ending stuff? Wasn't it? Pretty or is much, that heaven's yeah. gate? No, it, his views were were very um they were contrary to like basic things as well okay. as like um he yeah, there was an apocalyptic portion of it, but Okay, okay. This is uh he he, he kind of skirts off. This is where we're going to get um he establishes he- his headquarters to the west of Waco, Texas. In mm. 1934, and they became known as the Davidians. Mm. Okay. So we were talking about the Branch Davidians. So mm. these are the original Davidians. Um, and then Davidians are kind of like, I don't know, they're they're like, it's it's an offshoot of the Adventist Church. However, it, you know, was given its Davidian name from like David, and so mm-hmm. a lot of what they talked about was like, um being the descendants of David. Um, you can trace its roots all the way back to something called like the shepherd's rod. I don't know. It's who uh, also saw himself as like being a messenger of God and what regarded is the, as a prophet. What is the Adventist church? The Adventist church is just kind of like Baptist, um, Presbyterian okay. Methodist. Okay. It's, it's just another um, de- denomination. Yeah. yeah. Does this have to do with, like, an advent calendar? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. That's that's worth a uh, worth a side goog, and you don't have to find out. It's probably hard hard to find out, but I don't think I don't think it's okay. it's probably not um, oh. to do with well, the advent. Would, let me see. Oh, ad, advent is something like uh, I think that's like the the month of like Christ's birth or something. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is an Adventist Protestant Christian denomination which is distinguished by its observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week in the Christian, as the Sabbath and its emphasis on the imminent second coming of Christ. Okay, so they're an apocalyptic, or at the right. very least, they believe in the second coming of Christ, so they're they're waiting for him. So this well, is the Jesus is coming people, I think. Basically... Yeah, uh, and, and a couple of things that he, the reason why they kicked him out is because he had a, a list of abominations. He was like, "Yo, um, what you guys believe 
here's 12 things that, that are that are wrong with this. And then also, mm-hmm. like, what kind of kicked him out and did it? Was he tried to define the identity of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation? Which is, okay. like, it's, like, those are the people that, um, I can't remember what that is. But, eh. I've heard of this. Cool this is... I don't, I don't want to lead Sunday school. I've I've heard of this, but this was like I, I think the concept is this is a list of people who are doomed to hell, isn't it? Something like that, yeah. And so okay. he, he it was either doomed to hell or they're the ones going to be saved. So you can imagine how if he knows who those people are, then he's like, oh, I'm going to go round up all my people, and then he can determine because he's the prophet, he can determine who is in and who's not, which is not good to have that much power for one person. So it's getting cult like. So good on the Adventist Church for being like, go, go away, go take these yeah. teachings elsewhere. But oh, okay, uh, sorry, this is a group of people who. Okay, so most Adventists believe that in Jesus's second coming, only one hundred forty-four thousand people will be saved. Known as the one hundred forty-four thousand, they have a critical mission to prepare the world for Jesus's second coming. Which, by the go. way, Warren Jeffs uh, told his followers that they were also. The hundred forty-four thousand, and so that's why they built I, Zion and all of that. So yeah, it's it's like a convenient, not a convenient lie, I would say, but it's like a a convenient way to just say, you know what, we're good. You're not good. To get people to follow you. Yeah, exactly. You want to be a part of the the hundreds of thousands, then uh, join me, and you will be. Totally, I got it. Um, okay. In nineteen forty-two. Uh, Victor renamed the group to the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Whatever. But uh, as I was trying to say earlier, Davidian, which indicated its belief, uh, like the name Davidian indicated that they were the restoration of the Davidic kingdom of Israel. So something uppity, meaning that they were like ascended from or descended from royalty. Um. He died in 1955. We're we're scooting right along here. His wife, Florence, usurped the leadership, believing herself to be a prophet as well, and decided to lead the people from there on. Um, She tried to convince everyone that an apocalypse would occur in 1959, a date which is not found in her husband's original writings. Um, Florence and and her council gathered hundreds of their faithful followers at the Mount Caramel Center. Remember that name, because that's going to be a theme the mount caramel center is where the siege takes place the the group's compound and it's located near waco okay um basically the apocalypse didn't occur shocker and (laughs) following that disappointment benjamin Roden formed another group which he called the branch davidians Mm -hmm. so they now they're we're, we're away from victor and his wife now we're in the branch davidians and he succeeded in taking control of Mount Carmel from Florence. Who's Benjamin Roden? Benjamin Roden is the founder of the Branch Davidians. Okay, so he's just was he a member of the? He was Davidians? a member of the Davidians, and then okay. after basic after you know apocalypse didn't happen, he was like, all right, <laughs> fuck this. time to time to yeah assume power because Florence is yeah. not doing it for us. Yeah. Okay. Um, the name of this group is an allusion to the anointed branch uh, mentioned in, in, in Zechariah, if you want to read that, but eh. it's just okay. uh, it, <laughs> like anointed branch from like the tree of life or something. I don't know. Okay. It's, cool. it's all, a, it's all a, an allusion to Jebus. Yeah. Right. 
So from about 1959 to 1978, Benjamin Roden led the congregation and everything. You know, they're just doing their crazy Branch Davidian stuff. Um, not much is known about what had happened past at that point. Um, but we're going to jump a little bit ahead. Um, he, he died in 1978, uh, Benjamin Roden, and he was then succeeded by his wife, Lois Roden. Um, they were kind of a tag team being prophets at that time, going back and forth. And then members of the branch Davidians were torn between the allegiance to Lois or to his son, George, because it didn't make sense why Lois was now the, the leader in a, you know, male led right. Christian society. Um, and little, this is it, after, this strange. is after he's, he died. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Got it. So, um, Enter in Vernon Howell. Okay. He was born Vernon Wayne Howell, but he is more known as David Koresh. So David Koresh is the uh, main guy for the like Waco siege. And uh, I'm going to get into a little bit about who he is and then how he plays into this whole like power struggle. I have a question. At this point, is Lois still leading the church? At this point, it's like George, Lois, and George is her son, George Roden, and Benjamin Roden, even a little bit into Benjamin Roden, um, he's going to play a little bit of a role in uh, David Koresh's story too before he dies um, because they have okay. a little bit of an interaction. So we're going to okay. go, we're going to bounce back and talk a little bit about David Koresh right now. Okay. Um, but Benjamin Roden dies in 1978, and, and I'll catch mm-hmm. us back up in a second. Okay. Um, he was born in 1959 in Houston, Texas, to a 14-year-old single mother, Bonnie Sue, Bonnie Sue Clark. Okay. And a father. His father was Bobby Wayne Howell. And before Koresh Bobby was Wayne born, Bobby Wayne Howell sounds like uh, that. Just sounds like a radio host in like a small yeah, town. It's so kind they, of a cool name. I like the way it, it is cool. rolls. Bobby Wayne Bob, Howell. Bonnie. I mean, but Bonnie Sue Clark is also kind of cool. Yeah, that's true. Um, but. Before Koresh was born, his father met another teenage girl and uh, abandoned Bobby Sue. And uh, who, after, you know, Bonnie Sue got abandoned by her, you know, husband or baby daddy, um, she began living with another, like, with a violent alcoholic man. So yeah. not, not good stuff. Right. Okay. Um, in 1963, Koresh's mother left with her boyfriend and placed her four-year-old son, David Koresh, in the care of his maternal grandmother. Her name is Earline Clark, like Earline. It's a okay. terrible it's name. Um, uh-huh. His mother returned when he was seven after her marriage, marriage to a carpenter named Roy, Roy Haldeman. So from four to seven, his mom just was like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with my boyfriend for a while. Hmm. And uh, then she came back. Bonnie Sue and Haldeman had a son together named Roger, who was born in 1966. So after he, you know, she came back with her new husband, you know, he was kind of just there to be the the stepson and everything else. Okay. Um, Koresh did not meet his father face to face until he was 17. Oh. So um, the guy Bobby that just kind of Bobby Wayne, right? Okay. And uh, Koresh himself describes his early childhood as lonely, which I can imagine. Mm. He's an only child. Um, yeah. His mom doesn't... It, I don't know how you could leave your kid for like three years. So I imagine his yeah. mom wasn't... 
I don't know. You you can you can assume what you what you want about that, but I kind of believe him here as it as it does seem rather lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and due to his poor study skills and dyslexia, he was put in special education classes and given the nickname Vernie by his fellow students. So kind of diminutive, kind of like oh little little Vernie. Mm-hmm. Um, Koresh dropped out of high school in his junior year, so right around he when he let, met his father. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he. he dropped I knew he out. was a dropout. I didn't know that he was in special ed or anything like that. Yeah, I guess because of his, and it says because of his poor study skills and just. But I'm sure that that the funding and like resources didn't exist to know that dyslexia was not in fact like a mental deficit. It was like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like they didn't know how to coach him through that right that, exactly um, challenge. So yeah, you know they just put him in there with everybody who was having a worse time or same mm-hmm. same mm-hmm. struggle. Um, when David Chris was 19 years old, uh, he had an illegal sexual relationship with a 15 year old girl who became pregnant, which, you know, how is he supposed to know, know better? His mother was 14 whenever he had him. So unless she said that was bad anyway, yeah, he claimed to become a born again Christian in the Southern Baptist church and soon joined his mother's denomination, the seventh day Adventist church. Okay. There, Koresh had become infatuated with the pastor's daughter, Mm. and while praying for guidance, he opened his eyes and allegedly found the Bible open at Isaiah 34, 16. Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. So there's a scroll, we're reading it, it's from the Lord. Nice. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate, for it, it is his mouth that has given the order and his spirit which will gather them together. Sure. So I imagine he's, yeah. this is just saying that like everyone will have someone. I don't know. Okay. He, uh, he took this as like, yo, convinced this was a sign of God, like from God. He then went and talked to the bastard and was like, yo, God wants me to have uh, your daughter for a wife dog. And he's like, oh, sick. all right. Okay. Neat. Um, well, as <laughs> he's like, any, sick. yeah, sick. <laughs> well, as any father, um, the pastor threw him out and continued, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. David continued to persist the pursuit of his daughter until he was expelled from the congregation. Shit. Formally. And in 1981, after that happened, he moved to Waco, Texas, where he mm-hmm. joined the Branch Davidians, mm. not to be confused with the original Davidian Seventh-day Adventist church. This is after Lois. No. Has Lois died so, yet? So th- She's got to be old I, as fuck. I'm, I'm, I'm going to catch you up. So this was in 1981. Okay. This is after yeah. um, this is after Benjamin Roden died. And George, George is in charge. So, but is Lois yeah. dead then? No, she died in 1986. So Lois is there. Yeah, so the, all this stuff is going down um, with Lois and George both being there. So when, when I uh, David Koresh okay. joined... Um, they were both there, and Benjamin okay. Roden, who died in 1968, had, 78, um, right? Yeah, 78. Okay. So Koresh played the guitar and sang in the church services at the Mount Carmel Center, the sex headquarters outside of Waco. The sex um, headquarters. Heck yeah! So yeah, here's where <laughs> here's where shit starts going down, though. Okay. Um, in 1983, Koresh began claiming the gift of prophecy. And uh, David Thibodeau, which I don't really know how to, 
or Thibodeau. I, I think know. it's Thibodeau. I think he's a Christian author. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but Thibodeau. He wrote a book he... about um, Waco, and mm-hmm. in his 1999 book, A Place Called Waco, speculated that he had a re- um, sexual relationship with Lois, the widow oh, of Crush Benjamin Roden. Crushed it. Yeah. Mm. And who, yeah. <laughs> who was the leader of the cult at the time, and who was then in her late 60s. Ew. But uh, Koresh eventually began to claim that God had chosen him to father a child by Lois, what? who would be the chosen one. Hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, if you're wanting to, I don't know, I'm not going to say the that. Child <laughs> and, gonna have. Uh, if you're wanting yeah. to date grandma, nothing Wait, no, is that an one, When one the father's old the or one. when, wait, when the father's old or the mother's old, does the kid have Down syndrome? I, th- I think it's a father. I don't know. When the father's old. It, be, it's not guaranteed, mother. but the chances of Down syndrome are higher. I think it's when the father's old. So I was wrong. Go ahead. Yeah, well. I mean, she would have been in her late 60s, so she's not childbearing age. That was so true. I didn't think about that. <laughs> so if there is a child that comes out of that or he's, from that relationship. He's bearing the child. That's, like a not a good, that's not a good time. Like a seahorse. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in 1963, after the whole chosen one nonsense, Lois allowed Koresh to begin te- teaching his own message called the serpent's root, which oh. caused controversy in the group. Mm. Um, Lois's son, son, George Roden, intended to be the group's ne- next leader and considered Co- Koresh an, inter- an interloper. Mm. Love that word. Um, but yeah, he's super hating on uh, David Koresh because like okay. he just comes in like s- uh, <laughs> wins over my mom, like seduces yeah. my mom, and then now he's he's gonna try to be the leader. Yeah. Like, how, how much of a terrible time is George having? Oh, uh, poor George. Poor Georgie. Poor Georgie. George. <laughs> um, it gets worse uh, when oh, Koresh announced that God had instructed him to marry Rachel Jones. Um, she then just immediately went by Rachel Koresh at that point, um, even before like the congregation decided a period of calm ensued at Mount Carmel center. Um, but it was only proven temporary because people were probably glad that he wasn't trying to seduce Lois anymore. (laughs) Um, so they were like, okay, great. He's marrying someone normal. Um, it was temporary because. Who's huh? Mary? Who's Rachel Jones? Is she know, just some, a member of the church? She's an NPC. He marries like twelve other people. Some hussy. No, some I'm just some, <laughs> some some lady. Oh, I'm sure she lady. has a story, and I'd love to hear it, but she's not in this story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was she was down. She was down with the Koresh. Yeah, she's down um, with the Koresh. <laughs> yeah. So a fire had broken out and, and destroyed an administrating building and caused like $500,000 worth of damage. Oh. Um, Ro- George Roden said that Koresh started the fire, but Koresh replied that no man set that fire and that it was a judgment from God. Obviously. So great. Roden claiming to have the support of the majority of the cult forced Koresh and his group off the property at gunpoint. Nope. <laughs> and around... 25 followers set up camp at Palestine, Texas, 90 miles from Waco, where they lived under rough condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Palestine. (laughs) They lived under rough conditions in buses and tents for the next two years. So they lived outside. Buses. (laughs) 
bussing. They're van lifers. They were bussing hard. Bus. Uh oh. Ew! I hate bussing. <laughs> oh god. Iconic. Iconic. Wonderful Iconic, soundbite. Honestly. During this time, Koresh undertook recruitments of new followers in California, the United Kingdom, Israel, and Australia. That same year, when he traveled to Israel, where he claimed he had a vision that he was the modern-day Cyrus. So Cyrus, Cyrus is, he was a great, he was a king. Oh, okay. Cyrus of Persia, also known as Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus hmm. the Elder by the Greeks. Mm-hmm. He was um, the founder of the first Persian Empire, so he's an emperor. So, you know, okay. Yeah, he claimed he's the modern day Cyrus, which I wouldn't necessarily put him up there with that. I think I think uh Cyrus back then is pretty still pretty way cooler than he than Koresh is. Um mm-hmm. but he uh he gets he gets cooler in a bad way, I guess. Oh. Um the founder of the Davidian movement, Victor Hotef, wanted God wanted to be God's implement and establish the Davidic kingdom in Palestine. So Koresh also wanted to be God's tool and set up the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem, hmm. at least until 1990. Also Texas? <laughs> Jerusalem no, and Palestine? No, these are like actual places. Like oh, the okay, actual okay, places. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Yeah, it, Palestine, Texas is kind of like, it was just unfortunate to be called Palestine, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> But no, Victor wanted to, to like he wanted to like reestablish the Davidic kingdom, and so okay. Koresh followed suit because I guess it was similar enough to where he could convince people. Um, he believed the place of his martyrdom, martyrdom might be in Israel. However, in 1991, he was convinced that his martyrdom would be in the U.S. instead of in Israel. Mm. Great. He, he said that the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco. And that the Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. Mm. So he just changed the target to just be more close to home and more in line with his actual goals. And after being exiled to the Palestine camp, Koresh and his followers eked out a primitive existence. But when Lois died in 1986, the exiled branch Davidians wondered if they would ever be able to return to Mount Carmel Center. And despite the displacement, um, Koresh now enjoyed most of the most of the loyalty of the majority of the Branch Davidian community. So he was like still in good graces with everyone. Okay, got it. Despite being, you know, 90 miles away, he must have catch, caught kept in touch or right. he was just more um charismatic than than George was. Okay. So here's here's kind of another uh like climax. In 1987, George Roden exhumed a body from the community cemetery. Um, okay. Roden just said he, he was just moving the cemetery because it wasn't on like good grounds or he was you know, moving in to build something. I'm not sure. But Koresh immediately or very soon after claimed that Roden had issued a challenge to resurrect the body and that whoever resurrected the body would be the new leader. And this rumor went around. Koresh went to the authorities to file charges against Roden for illegally exhuming a corpse but he was told that he would have to show proof, such as a photograph of the corpse. This then gave Koresh the opportunity to seek criminal prosecution of Roden by returning to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers, allegedly attempting to get photographic proof of the exhum- exhumation. So weird. 
And of course, you know, when you go in with seven armed followers, Koresh, Koresh's group was discovered by George Roden and a gunfight broke out. Mm. When the sheriff arrived, Roden had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree, meaning like he couldn't move because or else he would get shot. Mm. Um, as a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. Oh. However, at the trial... Koresh explained that he went to Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of criminal disturbance of a corpse by Rodin, and Koresh's followers were acquitted, and in Koresh's case, a mistrial was declared. Mm. Wow. So if that had su- if they had succeeded in prosecuting him, this all this shit wouldn't have happened. Exactly. Um, oh. And his followers, so the armed followers, were acquitted, which I don't mm. really know how they did that. Yeah, I mean, what did they not shoot at all? Which is not especially because he wasn't at his most powerful at this point. Correct, and it's not, and that doesn't make sense because um, Rodin was wounded, so someone had to have shot him. So mm. they couldn't figure out who shot him. I don't know. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. I'm not sure how how it worked, but don't quit everyone. Like, find out what happened. I don't know. Yeah. So someone dropped the ball on that one, and in 1989, Rodin murdered. Waymondale Adair with an axe to the, to the face after Adair stated his belief that he himself was the true messiah. Who's so, this man? Just, Random um, guy? He, he's a rando who was just like, okay. yeah, I'm the messiah. And George was like, I'm done with this. <laughs> I'm done with this. George is fucking fed up. Yeah, so he just axed him to the face. And uh, Roden claimed that Waymondale Adair was a man sent by Koresh to kill him. Okay. So he was scared. He was judged okay. insane and confined to a psychiatric hospital at Big Spring, Aww, Texas. Oh, George. So, man. yeah. But now George is out of the picture due to his own okay. psych, uh, right. his own par- paranoia. Mm. And since Roden owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Caramel Center, um, Koresh and his followers were able to take the property and reclaim it as long as they were able to raise the money, uh, which they did. Okay. I understand. So, yeah. so now they have, now they have the promised land. Mm. Okay. Roden conti- continued to harass Koresh by filing, Ill- filing legal papers while imprisoned. When Koresh and his followers reclaimed Mount Carmel center, they discovered that the tenants who had rented from Roden left behind a meth lab, which Koresh reported to the local police department and had to have been removed. Oh, man. So that might have contributed to a little bit of George's paranoia was all that meth. Maybe. Yeah. We don't know that he was partaking for sure, right? So, yeah. We don't know. We don't know. But, you know, if you're renting out a meth lab. Anyways. um, (laughs) So Vernon Howe, who is David Koresh, filed a petition um, in 1990 to legally change, change his name for publicity and business purposes to David Koresh, finally. So it's no right. longer Bernie. Okay. Um, and uh, they... they like, who's laughing it. now? <laughs> yeah, basically. They were like, yeah, that's fine. Sure, whatever. But You will be given but, a new name, a stronger name. Basically. So if you're Dog wondering Vader. why David Koresh, right? Just kidding. <laughs> what... <laughs> It's like that. You will give him, given a new name, a name those will fear to speak, and then it was like David Koresh. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of exactly like that. Like he chose Koresh because Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great. 
Oh, wow. He really he really likes this Cyrus guy. Yeah, fun fact about Cyrus the Great, he was uh, named a messiah for freeing the Jews from Babylonian captivity. So okay. his first name, David, symbolized a direct lineage to the biblical King David from who the new messiah would descend. Sure. By taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing mm-hmm. himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, yada, yada, yada. I'm okay. cool. Worship me. I'm the Messiah. Yeah. Right. Yada, yada. And, and now yada. it's legal. So mm-hmm. I didn't just choose this name. It's my legal name. Here's right. my driver's license. <laughs> right. For sure. I'm Christ. Love me. I don't know. He wanted to create a new lineage of world leaders. Mm. And, and how do you do that, Grace? Uh, by fathering selective breeding. Yeah, by fathering many sons with 12 different women. Oh, God. All right, so, you know, got to create that new lineage of world leaders. Uh, I don't know who's going to vote them into power. Yeah. Just because you... Anyway, this practice later served as the basis for allegations that Koresh was committing child abuse. Shocker. Which contributed to the siege by the ATF, which... Oh, my God, it's exactly like... Roll down into this. It pretty much is, yeah. It's, I mean, it doesn't end the same way, but all, yeah. All cults lead to child abuse and yeah. mass death. Um, mm. I stand by that, actually. Uh, yeah, me too. So, Koresh was alleged to have been involved in multiple in- incidents of physical and sexual abuse of children. His doctrine of the House of David did lead to marriages with both married and single women in the Branch Davidians. Hmm. This doctrine was based on a purported revelation that involved the production of 24 children by chosen women in the community. So that's hmm. that's his way of creating the world ah. leaders. Right. Mm-hmm. Because these 24 children were, were to serve as the 24 ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. So all this is in the Bible. And all of these, so these 24 children are. They want, he wants them to be of his lineage. Right. Okay. I, I get, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Okay, cool. Because they're going to be the 24 ruling elders. Right. Sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These women were allegedly chosen through this doctrine and included at least one, at least one underage girl, Michelle Jones, who was the mm. younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel and the daughter of a lifelong Branch Davidians, Perry and Mary Bell Jones, which just makes me sad. Okay. Um, Six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protective Services in 1992 failed to turn up any any evidence, kind of like FLDS. This was possibly because the Branch Davidian concealed the spiritual marriage of Koresh to Michelle and assigned Michelle a surrogate husband, David Thibodeau, Oh, okay. So he's not who I appearances. I don't think he is. Wait, okay. Is David? He wrote a book. So is this like, is is he the surrogate husband or is he the? Oh, it's the same guy. David Thibodeau is the surrogate husband for Michelle. Oh, so he was a branch divinity. He's not who I thought. Stealed the spirit, the spiritual marriage of Koresh and Michelle. I got so okay. It didn't look like he was married to her for for just to cover it up. Gotcha. Um, regarding the allegations of physical abuse, though, the evidence is less certain. In one wildly reported incident, ex-members claimed that Koresh had become irritated with the cries of his son Cyrus. Wow. 
and spanked the child se- severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom, Aww. which doesn't sound fun. No. Um, in a second report, a man involved in a custody battle visited Mount Carmel Center and claimed to have seen the, a, the beating of a young boy with a stick. Oh, this is Just, like uh, 12 tribes. There was like some stick beating in that yeah. story, too. Let's let's not stick beat. Not Sorry. Fun. Oh, huh? I thought you were no, just saying. In let's general. not call it that. <laughs> no, that's what it is. Oh yeah, stick beating. Anyway, <laughs> after um, the man came through with the custody battle, um, Mount Carmel Center, and he visited and he claimed to see the uh, beating of a young boy with a stick. Mm. That's whenever Child Protective Services had had issued like a raid on the compound. In order to come oh, in and okay. try to um, um, control the situation and, or to see what's going on. Because they couldn't get and straight answers out of Koresh. There was all these allegations popping up. And so they began to start um, taking interest in uh, raiding compound. And that's what they did with the ATF. And this so, was following allegations of not just the stick beating, but also underage marriages? Child abuse, um, sexual and physical. Okay, okay. Yeah, so the underage marriages is one thing. Um, the physical beating of the of his children, as well as like you know, it's Got it. apparently it's apparently rampant. So this um, guy's kind of like the whistleblower. Yeah, um, it just says a man. I guess he didn't want to be named. Um, okay. As well as uh, as well as just you know a couple probably a couple different uh, ex members. Mm. Uh, they claimed that you know all all this all this stuff was going on. So okay. I imagine all this evidence or alleged evidence was was popping or piling up, and so mm-hmm. then it, that's what led to the raid. Oh, uh, okay, gotcha. And so we're gonna we're gonna call it here because then I'm gonna oh. get into um all the stuff that leads up into the raid. But yeah, David okay. Koresh is kind of a weirdo, allegedly at this point, right? Hmm. Yeah, big knucklehead. He wants to be like Jesus. He's a, definitely a wacko from Waco. <laughs> love, love that. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. He's a wacko from Waco, man. Trev, that was great. I, I was really interested to know about like the, like how many times the power changed hands because I didn't realize that, I kind of thought he was the leader from the beginning. I didn't realize that it was started off. I don't, but this, I guess now that I say that out loud, though, a lot of cults are that way. Like mm-hmm. some cults are like the Ant Hill kids where they kind of start with one man. Yeah. And they well, move up and progress to more extreme behavior. But then I feel like some cults are, most cults are, they spent, they stem from like an offshoot of like a main religious denomination and they get too extreme. And so they get kicked out and start their own shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? and, that, and it's interesting to see how like, the Davidians were a branch off of the Seventh Day Adventist, and then you had the Branch Davidians after mm. the apocalypse uh, mm. didn't happen. Right, and then you had um, almost like David Koresh's, um, what I would call like Koreshians after yeah. you know he came into power and, and George was was imprisoned. Uh, okay, gotcha. And it's like it kind of changed hands once again into like the Koresh stuff. And yeah. At that point, it's it take it took on a new. Um, a new thing entirely. Mm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Very interesting, and I'm excited to hear part two. Yeah, the siege is crazy. Like, there's so 44. many, so many problems. Hello? Yeah, 
there's a I I know that that's just considered to be in general one of the greatest failings of so many different systems and yeah the ATF were pretty big goofballs on that one knuckleheads which you'll find out next week girlfriends can't wait to hear about it episode 44 44 listen girlfriends thanks for sticking around follow us on instagram at where murder meets mystery even though i never post shit sorry i'll cut i'll get better about that also trev tell them where they can email us you can email us at same as the title where murder meets mystery at gmail.com okay and remember to rate and review us on apple podcast uh leave us a um a scathing review yeah no, just a oh. raving review. How about a raving review? Let's we'll go with raving review and a positive scathing review. I don't know. Yeah, Is a positive a- scathing review. Yeah, these were so <laughs> fucking awesome. I just fucking I love all the stories. I love it. I love it. Um. <laughs> anyway, we look forward to talking at you in episode forty-four, and we're leaving now. <laughs> We'll see you next week. That's our sign off. Well, we're leaving now, girlfriends. See you next week. Okay. Love you. Bye.